This is a huge text, right? I mean, honestly, to the extent that I know who you all are and your ethnicities, not one of you would be sitting in this room if it were not for this text. If you're Jewish here today uh, and you had heard the name of Jesus, you might be sitting here uh, because when the name of Christ was proclaimed in the first century, it was proclaimed to a Jewish audience. So when it says that Jewish people put Christ to death, it means that the Jewish leaders, along with the Romans, put Christ to death. But everyone who first put their faith and trust in Jesus was Jewish. You know that, right? And, and, and maybe it goes without saying, but Jesus was Jewish. He came as an ethnic Jew, all right? And so for those of us who are not Jewish, this is a big text for us. <laughs> we ought to be really thankful for this text. But there's so much more in this text. And in fact, I want to say that this text is going to uncover our hearts in a unique way that Luke is able to do. He is demonstrating in this text to Theophilus, as he pays attention, that the same blood of Jesus that saved the Jews would come and save the Gentiles as well that that same blood would be what saves the Gentiles. Now again, remember Luke is a Gentile. He is not a Jew and he's writing to Theophilus who is most likely also a Gentile. Again, that word just simply means not a Jew. And when he writes this and he repeats Cornelius's story four times, if you read the next 18 verses, you're kind of shocked and you stop and you go, what is Luke trying to do? And I'm convinced that Luke is trying to speak to Theophilus and say, the God who saves the Jews by the blood of, the, of Christ, his Christ, Jesus, also saves you, Theophilus. The argument that I want to put forth from this text today is simply this. Since humanity's one sure hope of deliverance from God's judgment is the blood that Jesus shed. We ought to identify and repent from all forms of partiality in our lives, in our church, and in our mission. Jesus's blood is humanity's one sure hope of deliverance from God's judgment. Anytime you get a chance to listen to somebody who's 90 plus years old preach, you should do it. You should just listen to them. I'm telling you right now. I've been listening this week to a guy named Dick Lucas, who is British. And I think if my math is right, that he's now 94. And um, he says of these verses in verse 42 and 43, look at him with, you, with me if you will. Uh, it starts on page 918. My Bible's page number different than, than, than yours. I think it's 919 where it's verses 42 and 43. Peter says what Jesus commanded him. And he, Jesus, commanded us, the apostles is what Peter is saying, to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. A very simple proclamation of what it means to declare that Jesus is God's Messiah, is the Christ. 
the judgment and the promise of judgment precedes in this proclamation who Jesus was and the forgiveness that is offered in him. Dick Lucas, who is from an Anglican background, is also able to say the church calendar supports that. And those of you who have been here long enough know that that is true as well. Advent comes before Christmas. And as we, those who are post-Christ, His coming, and now He is in heaven, we await His second coming. We know that judgment is what will happen. One of my friends wrote this week, or t- last week to be honest with you, he wrote last week and he said, sometimes in, in my dark moments I fantasize about Jesus holding liable all Christians who take his name and yet act in specific ways. And I texted back and I said, I don't fantasize about it, I expect it to happen. And it terrifies me. Judgment is who Jesus is declared to be, the judge whom God has appointed to judge all of the living and the dead, every human being that has ever lived. And then it says, to, all who are, to, all, or to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This passage is about humanity's sure hope of deliverance from God's judgment by the blood that Jesus shed. And because of that, we ought to seek to identify and to repent from all forms of partiality that we see in our lives, in our church, and even in our mission. It happens through this play with Cornelius and Peter. And it's not a play, it's actually God at work. Do you remember how we've teased and we've said that the real title of Acts ought to be the Acts of Jesus from heaven through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit? Not only would no one ever remember that, but it would be hard to write on every page. This is that example. God is at work. Jesus is working through his angels and through his spirit. But it's the intertwining of Cornelius' life and Peter's life that's so amazing. And I want to show it to you in three acts. The first one is this. Cornelius is lost and Peter's limited. You hear the L's? Cornelius is lost and Peter is limited. And let me show you how. Look down in here in verse 10, or chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. We're in this town, Caesarea. It's by the coast. It's named after Caesar. It is where the Roman Empire had its central administration over the whole region of Judea. All right? And here we have this centurion. This guy who was described as a devout man who feared God with all of his household, he gave alms generously to to the people, and he prayed to God continually. And it even says what hour of the day. And notice that it says what day and what hour in each section of these things. I really believe God that Luke is showing Theophilus, look, God is working this out in these people's lives. Pay attention, Theophilus. We ought to pay attention. It says that God sent an angel to Cornelius. And he said, Cornelius, Cornelius is told to us to respond in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, it's really interesting. He then goes on to say, I want you to send for Peter. And he tells him where to find Peter and, and tells him to, tell him to come, tell him to come see me. 
But what I want you to see in here is that Cornelius is lost. Now it's defined clearly in the 11th chapter. If you were to flip over chapter 11 and look at verse 14, you would hear Peter articulate what Cornelius told him. The angel told me to tell you to come and speak to me so that I and my whole house might be saved. Cornelius is not saved here. But Luke does something special to help us see that even deeper. Luke says that all the things, his alms and prayers that have risen before God, have risen before him as a memorial. And he uses a specific word that relates back to aspects of sacrifice from Leviticus and even the second chapter that talk about the portion of one's offering that is burned up in the, in the fire of God, that is burned up there, that belongs to God. It's God's share, this memorial. And what is interesting is every time it's listed in the Old Testament, this memorial, as he describes what is going on with Cornelius' um, devotion to God. Every time it is bloodless. It never involves blood. It always involves grain. It always involves food. And it's always destroyed in the fires of God. And that's how God, through his angel, describes the devotion of Cornelius to God. And he says, send for Peter. He needs to come. Because Cornelius is lost. He doesn't understand his need for bloodshed. He doesn't get it yet. But if Cornelius is lost, Peter is limited. And we see that as this vision expands. You can read those first eight verses again. Cornelius communicates what the angel has communicated to him. And he sends two of his closest confidants along with one of the soldiers so that they wouldn't be stopped. Because, again, remember, he's of the Roman occupation, occupying the Jewish region. And, and in some senses, Peter had to obey him if he wanted to enforce it. But what we see is something different from Peter. It picks up in verse 9 with Peter's vision. One of the most complicated visions that we see in Scripture, a sheet that descends from heaven and all of the animals, both clean and unclean, those which the Jewish nation were called to eat from and also those that they were called not to eat from descends down. And God in a voice speaks to Peter and he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat in verse 13. And in verse 14, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And, and the intuition is, and I'm not going to start now. <laughs> I've never defiled myself, and I'm not going to start now. But then he hears this voice. And the voice came to him a second time, and he said, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this vision happens three times. All that happens three times in a row. This idea of three times repeating so that it is assured that it took place. And Peter doesn't know what to do. Peter says, look, I've never eaten anything that is unclean. Peter says, I have followed your dietary prescriptions from this nation now, it's hard to suss out what the dietary prescriptions actually were and what they meant, but most scholars believe that central to an understanding of them is the use of blood. 
You can look back in Genesis and another place in Leviticus and you can see that God has said you should not eat blood at any point. For the life of the animal is in its blood and the blood is not for you. And so Israelites were not allowed to eat blood, nor were they allowed to eat any animals that ate the flesh of other animals with the blood in them. All right. And that went anything from a tiger all the way down to a lobster who was the scavenger of the sea and ate the flesh of other animals that was presumably in the sea with blood still in them. Right. And Peter has said, look, I've never depended on blood. And Peter says, I'm not going to start now. But you see, Peter has missed a connection between this dietary regulation and the sacrificial system that is fulfilled in Christ. And he scratches his head and he wonders what's going on. He knows Leviticus 11. He knows Deuteronomy 14. He knows what is clean and what is unclean. And central to both Cornelius's lostness and Peter's limitedness is the concept and the understanding of blood and what it meant for the people. The next segment, Peter ponders while Cornelius prepares. If you look in verse 17, it says that Peter was inwardly perplexed by what he saw. If you're sitting there going, I still don't get it. I, I don't understand what, what, what happened yet. You're in good company. You didn't even see the vision. You've had to read about it and then hear me articulate it to you. But Peter looks at it and he goes, I'm perplexed. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, then the men from Cornelius actually show up at the house and they ask whether Simon called Peter is there. And while Peter is thinking this through, he's told by the spirit in verse 19, behold, these three men who are looking for you rise and go and accompany them. And then he says, without hesitation. And the note in your Bible actually leads you to the bottom. It says without distinction, without distinguishing the fact that they are not Jewish. You go and you go with them. Go without distinction. Peter thinks that that's important because he repeats that in the 11th chapter. In the 12th verse, when he's defending what he did to the people in Jerusalem, he says that the Holy Spirit told me to go without distinction of who they were and to go with them. Something in Peter's brain is starting to make sense of this scene. And in verse 23, we're told that not only did he invite them in to be his guests to another person's house, Peter the, or Simon the Tanner, but that the next day he arose and he went with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Peter doesn't even yet fully understand. But you know, even as Andrew mentioned last week, as Luke talked about the, uh, a picture that Peter would have found familiar from the Gospels, here again, Peter has seen Jesus deal with a Roman centurion. Luke 7, and Jesus willingly went to him, and Peter follows, even as he ponders. And as he ponders, Cornelius prepares 
See this right here. It says it in verse 24. And on the following day, so again, 30 miles between Joppa and Caesarea, I, I, these guys could walk a lot further than you and I can. And it usually would take them, you know, the better part of one day and then overnight, and then they would rest and then they'd get there the next day, right? And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. Remember, Peter says in the 11th chapter, that the angel of the Lord said to Cornelius, go and call for Peter because he's going to tell you something that you need to hear so that you might be saved. And Cornelius says, this is important. I need to pay attention to this. And not only that, but I want the ones who I love to hear this. My friends and my relatives, will you come to my house? This is going to be a big day. Somebody's going to come and tell us what we need to hear to be saved. Cornelius prepares. And then the last of our story that brings it to light is that Cornelius worships while Peter wonders. Cornelius worships while Peter wonders. Look what happens when Peter shows up at Cornelius' house in verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Cornelius still doesn't understand who God is and by what means he would be saved. He still doesn't understand the necessity of blood. But what he does do is what he knows to do, which is worship the one who actually came in response to the angel's vision. But Peter lifted him up and he said, stand up. I too am a man. And as he was talking with him, he went in and found many persons who were sitting there. And Peter looks and he begins to put the pieces together and he says, look, you all know how taboo it is for me to be among all of you non-Jews. You know that it's against our very traditions. You see, what Peter can't say is it's against the law of God because it wasn't against the law of God. Dietary and ritual cleanliness was against the law of God, but being with non-Jews was not against the law of God. But the Jews had taken their dietary restrictions and they had determined that from those, those people who didn't follow them, God must think less of them. And so they too began to think less of them. So much so that by this point, it became tradition that a Jew would not even be in the presence, certainly not share table fellowship with a non-Jew. No way. But Peter is beginning to put the pieces together. He's beginning to understand that God has told him, and it says here in verse 28, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, the lights are beginning to go off for Peter He's beginning to understand that this idea of following these dietary laws that highlighted for them their dependence not on eating blood or animals who ate blood, but on the sacrificial system of depending on the blood of sacrifices to cover them. 
He's beginning to understand that what they have done is they have taken those laws and they have raised themselves up against other people and said they are less than. And Cornelius, or Peter even says in verse 28, God's shown me that I can't call anybody common, the opposite of holy, profane, if you will. And then he looks at them and he goes, now why have you called me? You see, it's still not clear to Peter. Cornelius tells his story again. This is what happened to me. Angel shows up, says, call you. You've been kind enough to come and now in the presence of God, tell us what you're here to tell us. And Peter is filled with wonder. Read verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The penny has dropped. Peter understands that those whom God has called holy, he should not call profane or common. Peter understands that his view of people who are other than him has been wrong and God has corrected it. He is filled with wonder and he says, truly, God has made this clear. He obeys Jesus's command, his command to proclaim that Jesus is the judge of the world whom God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. This resurrected Jesus, as he explains to them, who died and was cursed on a tree, had been raised from the dead. God appointed him judge. Now, do you understand why Cornelius needed to hear what Peter said? Because he couldn't depend on his memorial sacrifices. He had to depend on the blood of another. And Peter began to understand that the blood of Christ fulfilled the sacrificial systems. Therefore, abrogating all of the dietary restrictions as well. Rise, kill, and eat. The blood that could cover you has been provided in Christ, Peter. And it covers you, but it also covers anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. And listen, if you're here today and you have not done that, I want you to hear it proclaimed. There is a day of judgment coming and your only escape is to put your faith and trust in the blood of Christ that was shed for you. There is no bloodless option for you as a non-Christian or for you, Christian, as a Christian. You depend on the blood of Christ. And then he said, look, every prophet in all of the Old Testament, has pointed to this. And as if we haven't seen this enough, right, in, in, in Acts so far. We can just go back to Luke 24 and show how Jesus showed his disciples. Look, every prophet has pointed this. Jeremiah 31 says that forgiveness will be given in the name of Christ. Isaiah 28 says that forgiveness will be for the nations. Isaiah 56 says that forgiveness is offered to any who are contrite and broken of heart. Forgiveness is offered. It's offered. It's yours. 
And what happens? Cornelius' family and friends worship. How do you know? Because the Holy Spirit falls on them the same way it fell on the Samaritans, the same way it fell at Pentecost. The same attributions of praise and of speaking in tongues as this concentric circle of salvation extends further and further out. And Peter, in wonder, and those who are with him, as it says, in amazement, say, who could withhold baptism? Because that thing which baptism signifies, the gift of the Holy Spirit, has already been seen. This is amazing. And they're filled with wonder. You see, both Cornelius, who was lost, and Peter, who was limited, understood that both were saved by the blood of Christ and that God of the Bible is a God who shows no partiality. It's central. If you're not a Christian, your salvation is in Christ's blood shed for you. There is a judgment. But you can go now and make everything right. Put your faith and trust in him. What does the church learn from this? That we ought to identify and repent from all forms of partiality in our lives, in our church, and in our mission. I wrote this week that partiality is an equal opportunity destroyer. It destroys what we believe about humanity when we show partiality. We, as a church, all human beings, as human beings created in the image of God, blaspheme the God in whose name we are created when we show partiality. And when partiality toward one group of people or another is joined to historically social, political, or economic power, then destruction happens. An equal opportunity destroyer. What results from it we see here is clear. Ethnic superiority, racism, sexism, socioeconomic exclusion, elitism, either educational, intellectual, political, nationalism, even regionalism. You know, it's really interesting for me as a Southerner. I go back south and people go, when are you coming back here? Haven't you had enough of being up there? You want to know what somebody said to me the other day? Privacy of their own home. I would never live in the south. Huh, really? Never. Huh. You see, this partiality is deep in us. And it is an equal opportunity destroyer. And I want to close with these three questions. In your life, what type of people do you avoid? Toward whom do you show partiality? Get as close as you can. Let me ask you this question. Maybe shed some light on it for you. Who are you praying for that they would come to faith who is not like you? 
What does our church do? Well, let me ask you this. Does the makeup of our church reflect the kingdom? You guys, that's not really fair, Bradley. We all know that the kingdom is made up of every tongue and tribe and nation and people, right? We, we've read both the New Testament and Revelation and the Old Testament and Isaiah. We understand that. And you go, look, Newton Wellesley, it's, it's made up of certain folks. Shouldn't the church be at least look like that and, and ought not it to lead? And what about our mission? Our mission of declaring that there is going to be a judgment. And Jesus is the judge of everyone who has ever lived or died, everyone, that there's judgment coming. But what is offered that you can settle out of court with God right now is the opportunity for forgiveness. I'm a white male. I can't be anything but a white male. You know that. I know that. God created me this way. We also know that historically speaking, that has given white males opportunity to show partiality in ways that have been utterly destructive. How does the way that I act moving forward communicate something other than what is often referred to as white guilt. Do you want to know how? By proclaiming that Jesus is the judge and the justifier. Because what people need to hear is that Christ has come to remove partiality to the deepest core of our lives and of his church and even of the world. Because with God, there is no partiality. It's an incredible message. This message of the gospel. I thought this week of Psalm 130. You know Martin Luther as he sings of Psalm 130. From the depths of woe as he understands the depths of our sin. And it says this, and it resonated with me when I thought about our partiality. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last is Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. From all their sin and sorrow. From all their sin and sorrow. Church, listen to me. It is not with silver or gold that you have been bought, but is with the precious blood of Jesus, the lamb who is without blemish. Therefore, you are called to love one another deeply from the heart without partiality. We ought to, with every effort, identify and repent from all forms of partiality among us. And here's the hope. The blood of Jesus has been shed for Cornelius and for Peter, for you and for me. And now, and now 
we go and feed from it. Come with me. Let's pray.